Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I'm not sure how it happened, but there's only one month left in the third quarter of 2023. And we know that the fourth quarter is often heads down, especially for retailers. So it seems like there's been a handful or more than a handful of RFIs and RFPs going out the last several weeks. And as I have conversations with both merchants on this topic and vendors, I've picked up on a couple things that I wanted to share just kind of from my perspective and also from you know bits and pieces of perspective from other people I have spoken with on this topic over the last few weeks. Because while RFIs and RFPs are important, I think there's a lot of people that are doing them wrong and not intentionally. I, I don't know if it's a course that's taught in college. I you know have been honest, I didn't finish. But even if it was, right, it wouldn't be specific to our world. And I think that, you know, RFIs and RFPs, so, you know, request for information or uh, request for proposals, uh, which is often, you know, the process of reaching out to a select number of vendors that maybe you've narrowed down or think that they have the solution or solutions that you're looking for. And it's almost like a job review, but on paper uh, and giving, you know, standard questions and then allowing them to answer it. And sometimes companies pick one out of that. Others will maybe narrow it down to two and go from there. I guess I should probably show my bias now. I don't know if those are always the right way to do things, but I'll explain that a little later. Uh, but it's still a lot of times, whether it's something, a process that a merchant or a bank or, you know, any fraud fighter uh, on the practitioner side wants to do, oftentimes it is a requirement for their company. So uh, you, even if they think they know who they want to work with, or they also want to have a series of conversations with them, they'll sometimes also do this uh, just more as a formality. Uh, and other times companies uh, like merchant companies and others will have their procurement team help them select a solution provider. <sighs> that can also be uh, that just doesn't always work out because sometimes they're looking at things like price and other things because they don't they're just looking at price or they're just looking at what they claim or things like that. They don't understand the fraud world. And oftentimes, I mean, oftentimes people in fraud think that all solution providers sound the same. So you can only imagine how procurement people, you know, would think. But that, you know, really just depends on company policy. But what I've kind of noticed over the last, I don't know, several months or just whenever this conversation comes up, and also in you know conversations with other people is that there are ways that that merchants and we can you know like with most episodes substitute merchants with fintech or marketplace or banks ways that they incentivize solution providers to behave badly and often set themselves up to fail um within vendor combos and rfis and things like that and uh well you know i guess i'll just start it off here right so while i have had some criticism and I think fair criticism uh, of vendors and and some well some vendors and some solution providers though I don't name them publicly uh, some people guess but that's uh, 
that just probably means that my descriptions are sadly accurate. Um, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. So, uh, you know, I've definitely, you know, been critical of some, but I've also noticed patterns of behavior on the merchant side that can sometimes be the root cause of why vendors can or sometimes think that they need to behave badly. So I guess for, you know, any solution provider that says I unfairly target them when using my mom voice or my teacher voice. I guess you heard my mom voice the other day or a couple weeks ago when I interviewed Jordan, uh, my daughter. So maybe it won't be my mom voice that I'm using, but my teacher voice, maybe uh, just, you know, observations. Right. And I think that there's always things we can learn. Uh, so I hope that this is helpful. And here's what I mean. So in kind of like I said before, in the RFP and RFI process, you know, merchants make their goals and their needs clear. Like we need to reduce our exposure, you know, by X without compromising good orders by Y or something like that. Or other times it's, you know, we need to reduce chargebacks by X and refund fraud by Y or whatever those things are. And then, you know, throughout the RFI, if you're looking through it, just reading through the additional questions, it can tell prospective partners, prospective vendor partners, what matters to you most or how you think about things or kind of maybe your, you know, your level of understanding of the fraud world with your, you know, procurement team and just send the same RFI to all SaaS vendors, whether they, you know, are in fraud or marketing or customer service or supporting any other team. Uh, but those, yeah, those additional questions can tell them a lot about what matters. Um, so maybe they'll read, huh, you're asking a lot about price or how we price or, you know, all those things. Obviously, cost is important and cost should be important. It just should not be the only factor. Uh, staying off the programs, right? So if you're asking a fair amount of questions about keeping uh, ratios or thresholds under a certain percentage, etc. They probably can infer that that has been a problem before. Uh, you know, if you are focusing on the customer experience or sales side, they can know that approval rates will be important to you. So often, like the solution provider filling out their side of the RFP will tell the merchant what they want to hear or tell the buyer what they want to hear, right? And they'll focus on, you know, the on those goals that they read throughout the questions or, you know, picked up on in the objective statement or anything like that. They'll focus on that with every answer, with buzzwords, etc. So even if that's not the best benefit of their product, right? So if the best benefit of their product is to reduce chargebacks, but throughout the, and this is just one very like easy example, but throughout the RFI, you were focused on increasing sales then that's what they're going to focus on. They're not going to focus on reducing chargebacks because they clearly can see that that's what you want, right? It's similar to essay questions, right? Uh, when when you were in college or other things, that, or it's, it, it's essentially what, you know, if you watch legal shows, right? It's leading the witness. Uh, it's leading the person. So you're giving them information to know what you care about and they'll just weave that throughout. And uh, I'm sure you've seen that before. Um even if they don't, or if they, you know, can't provide what they're promising, right? They're gonna answer those questions the way that they think you want to read them and what you're looking for. Not necessarily what is best about their product. I There are rarely, I know a few, but there are rarely many vendors that will answer RFPs honestly, that will say, 
you know, we don't actually do that, or we do this well instead, or just basically providing you what you need to hear rather than what they think that you want to hear. It's also, I think, worth noting that usually the person who's filling out an RFP on the vendor side isn't a product person. They're not someone who's been in, in this world or on this side. They don't totally understand the product. It's usually someone in sales, uh, even marketing sometimes. Um, so they don't always understand their product capabilities. They know the buzzwords to be used to sell the product, uh, to explain the product on a website or in a press release, but they can't and often don't answer things in a way that I think is very helpful or productive. That's one of the reasons why I usually stay away from RFIs um, when working with clients to select providers. Um, in a lot of ways, I've already done a lot of the legwork. Um, and maybe, you know, if you listened to last Thursday's episode, you know that I kind of cheat in a way uh, to understand, you know, which solution providers are the best. I listen to users of all solution providers, and it becomes very clear pretty quickly that there are themes and some solution providers have very happy customers uh, and they'll say exactly why and they'll talk about the product and you know the customer support and hey we had this problem that they didn't have a solution for but they worked with us to customize one for us uh, things like that right uh, then I'll hear from customers of other vendors that are you know <laughs> they promised us xyz but that's not at all what happened or yeah we call our rep and they don't know what they're talking about they completely make stuff up or they tell us that they'll find out and then they never reply and honestly usually those second ones are are the vendors that are filling out the rfps with what they think you want to hear so that's one way that you know unintentionally obviously but that's one way that you know buyers are really encouraging or incentivizing solution providers to behave badly from the jump. They're telling them, lie to me and tell me that, that this works. Um, tell me, you know, here's what I need to, or here's what I want to hear. Here's how I will base my decision on who to pick and who to implement in my company. And obviously who gets the contract and our brand on, you know, their website. And here's all you need to say. That's basically the way some of them see them. And I have heard from some people that have basically said as much. Uh, and it's it's not like there are companies that some customers love and some customers hate. And it's not like there are some vendors that uh, you know some customers have issues with and others don't. I mean, there's, there's a couple that maybe are outliers because the person who runs fraud there, you know, is very, uh, I don't want to say high maintenance, but has high standards and has held the vendor to those from the beginning. And they may have been, you know, one of their first big customers. And so they'll, you know, they might not have as many negative things to say about a specific vendor, but as everyone, uh, other people that, you know, use them or have joined them after them, but it's very much black and white in that way. There's not a lot of in between. There's not a lot of gray area. Uh, and same thing goes with the way that they, you know, behave and do their business. The ones who need to, or the ones that don't feel like they need to lie are going to be honest. And sometimes the ones that are honest, actually often in an RFP process, especially when uh, there's, uh, it's obvious what the buyer wants, which most of them are when you read through the questions and the statement and you know and all that uh the ones that just tell you what they think you want to hear usually are the ones that people their users are saying they don't do at all what they say they do 
Gee, I wonder why. Probably because they just filled out the answers the way they thought you knew you wanted to hear. They just wanted the contract. They didn't care so much, you know, about making sure that the relationship afterwards is a good one. It's kind of like if you, you know, a real life analogy of that or example would be, you know, two people were dating and, you know, one of those people just said, you know, whatever they thought that the other person wanted to hear and just were the person, oh, you like this? Oh yeah, me too. And, you know, or just someone else. They were the person that they thought that that the person they're dating wanted to marry and thought was a good uh, mate and a good match. But then if there was a marriage proposal and if they got married, then if that's not, you know, eventually that mask comes off, right? Exactly. Eventually they can't keep that up forever, especially in the case of a vendor, because eventually you need to implement their tool and use it and see how it performs. Well, then like, then what, right? What was the point that there was a lot of time wasted and you're obviously going to be disappointed if you already knew before you, know, you got married that they snored and wore headgear and snorted when they laughed or I don't know. And some of those things are actually, I don't know, some people find cute. I don't know. I'm trying to think of things that might universally be turnoffs, but whatever that is, right? Like um, if you find those things afterwards, you'd be pretty disappointed. You'd feel like your time was wasted and you were lied to. And that's just not the right way to start off a good relationship or a lasting relationship. And, you know, maybe in that dating scenario, the person who was playing a part was doing it because, oh, they get a ring in the end. And maybe there's, you know, going to be a decent amount of money in a divorce settlement. You know, hard to know, right, what their intentions are. But to me, that's very similar as solution providers that are just saying what they think the buyer wants to hear to get the contract and not really double checking with anyone that knows anything about their product or asking their customers, hey, I know you use us for this specific problem. You know, what's been great about it or what could we work on? They'll tell you if if they think that you will be responsive and you won't be vindictive or gaslighting afterwards and say, well, you're the only one that has that problem. Or as, you know, Nate talked about the party line uh, on Tuesday's episode, which I am recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So I know that that was a popular episode and I'm really glad because very important info. But like Nate said, you know, oftentimes it's, well, you're not sending us enough data. It's on you. It's not on us. And sometimes that's true, like you said, but that's not meeting someone halfway. That's not understanding your customer and understanding that their company dedicates less than 5%. Usually it's 3% or less of all of their engineering resources to fraud. So yeah, the API was connected badly. It wasn't done right. Well, what can you as a solution provider do to make it better? Rather than just telling them they're the only company that ever has that problem, because trust me, Whenever anyone tells me that, I have yet to have anyone tell me that and me not go, would you like a list of like seven or eight companies that are also having that problem with that solution provider? I Well, maybe there was one, but it was a very unique situation. There's, It's all about trend analysis, right? Like once a fraud fighter, once a fraud analyst, always a fraud analyst. And it really is, you know, it can be applied to lots of things, just like in, you know, customer feedback. So Sometimes, here's another way that, uh, you know, merchants can encourage bad behavior. Sometimes they can act entitled or maybe not act entitled, but assume that a fraud vendor um, should have all solutions in one bucket, that they can solve this problem and that problem, and that problem, that problem, even if they're all at different 
points of the funnel and all different you know, types of issues. One's a login, one's a transaction, one's refund fraud, one's payment fraud. Those are very, very different and should be handled differently. But, you know, I get it that most merchants uh, are lucky if they even get to tackle one thing a year with new technology or, you know, a new solution. Uh, and there are a lot of use cases and a lot of problems, especially if the vendor you're using right now is not meeting your basic needs for payment fraud or or login fraud or whichever one has been, you know, depending on your business model, which one is more pervasive. If they're not doing what they need, well, then you have that plus all the other newer types of fraud or newer attack methods that have been coming up over the years. So I understand that it's ideal to find you know, one solution provider that provides everything. But as I was often told on a personal note, like when you try to be everything to everyone, you end up being, you know, failing, right? You end up being nothing to, to no one. Or And it is true that most core fraud solutions out there do have products for multiple purposes, but not all of them. In fact, I would probably say the majority of them aren't all good, right? They might have a decent account protection product, but not so good on the payment protection or the policy abuse or, you know, anything like that or vice versa or all around. And also it's important to know that like they often are going to have different API connections needed for different use cases and in different parts of the customer journey or within the funnel, right? You're going to have different API connections for login protection than you are going to have for policy abuse and then you're going to have for transaction monitoring. So, you know, it may be the fact that you're trying to shop for one solution for one vendor and maybe one invoice to pay, but that your engineering team still has to connect multiple APIs. And as we know from the second episode that, uh, that Nate was my guest on, I think it was in February of this year. We know that API connections for fraud technology are so much harder than API connections for anything else. And so not all solution providers are familiar with them or are gonna do everything the you know the way that it needs to be and buttoned up, which is how we got to Tuesday's episode about gaps in the API connections uh, between third-party solution providers and merchants. So it's not always a good thing there either on your part, right? You're trying, I understand why you're trying to say, okay, well, it makes sense. If we're only allowed to have one thing, then we'll just say, oh, we're just adding one vendor. But if that's six different API connections, like in different calls, like, is that really, I don't know, maybe you'll get to the point where it goes to your engineering and they're like, uh, no, you have to pick one. But usually the case is that, like I said before, like they're not all going to be best in class, right? And there are some companies that are doing different things outside the box that are going to be better for you in some of those areas. And refund fraud is such a good example, uh, especially when, you know, I call it refund claims fraud because I think there's a difference, but I know that everyone else knows it is refund fraud. So uh, trying to use that shorthand, but, you know, especially when merchants started to say, you know, wow, this is actually a fraud thing. Uh, back in March, April, May of 2020, there were a couple of solution providers that very quickly said, oh yeah, we have a solution for that. It's, you know, policy abuse or, oh yeah, we can do that for a refund fraud. But then when merchants implemented it, they learned that hasn't changed anything for us. That hasn't reduced our problem at all. Oh, it's because you didn't actually understand the issue. You didn't understand that the point of compromise wasn't the time of transaction. 
at the time of transaction, every order looks the same, whether they're going to commit refund fraud or not. It's similar to friendly fraud, where it's impossible at the time of transaction, unless maybe you're a really good psychic, but I have yet to hear of that being a scalable solution. But it's, you know, it's impossible to look at you know, orders that don't look like payment fraud uh, and or promo code abuse or anything else that can happen at the time of transaction and say, okay, well, in three weeks, this person is going to call and they're going to say that they didn't get the item. Or in four weeks, this customer is going to call us and say that it was damaged or that it came in an empty box or that they sent it back to our warehouse, but really we can't find it, which there's like eight different reasons for that last one. Uh, go back and listen to I can't remember which episode it is, but I know I talked about the FTID method uh, on refund fraud before. So that was where I would go to learn about that. But so my point is they were trying to fix this problem at the time of transaction because they recognize something. And it's something that I often tell, you know, the vendors that I work with on, you know, go to market strategy, which really is just a fancy way of saying understanding your customers and being able to explain things to your customers in a way that they understand. And that's why I only offer it to select vendors that uh, I have kind of put through the ringer and especially talk to their customers. But whenever I'm talking to them, I'm saying, uh, especially a new company, right? There's been a few people over the last few months that uh, are considering starting new companies in this industry. And I think that's exciting. But often I will say, is that a need to have or is it a nice to have? Is it doing something better? Or is it fixing a problem that you that you have that you don't have a fix for? Is it fixing a problem in a way that another company can't? Is it solving for that? Because to be honest, in the enterprise fraud world, and even, I mean, especially all the way down, like the smaller they get, if it's a nice to have, sure, they'll take a couple meetings and they'll be interested. But like I said before, we are so under-resourced and un- not always supported well. So because of that, we have to pick and choose. And it's often that we'll go with whatever solution is fixing a problem that we don't have a fix for right now. That's the new company that's going to be implemented. So on that note, some of those solution providers recognized, oh, well, everyone's asking us if we have a solution for a refund fraud. Nobody really cares about our solution for payment fraud or anything else because they have something. It may not work as well, might be losing them millions of dollars, but that's a much tougher sell to, as some people call it, rip and replace, you know, to take out one tool and put in another, then it is to say, hey, we have this problem. This is the best way to solve it, or this is a solution that will solve this problem. We need to get it in. And oh, by the way, they also do these other things that we could replace. So some of those companies would say, yep, we do that. Sure. Uh, and they, you know, promise. And it crashed and burned pretty fast. Those companies no longer, well, maybe one or two do, but they had to tweak it. You know, they really, none of them kept those products the way they were and claimed that they solved refund fraud because word got out real fast. Um, A few of them reached out to me because they knew I was, you know, I had a call with several dozen uh, e-commerce retailers and they, of course, wanted the retailers to know that there was a solution. And so I would ask to see a demo and I'd be like, you really don't understand this problem. I've been in Telegram for eight hours a day studying this problem front, back, forwards. You know, I've taken tutorials. I've read things, I've, you know, and I'm working with the merchants. So I know what it looks like on their side and I know it won't work. Or I've asked, you know, I would ask a couple of merchants that, you know, used that solution provider already for their other tools and say, hey, have you looked at this or are you using this? 
And they're like, no, not at all. This, it's not going to help. And it, or we piloted it and it didn't work. So that's just, you know, it's a, a cautionary tale, but for vendors, but also for merchants, because some of them will just tell you what they think you want to hear. And so if you are expecting one solution to do it all and kind of be one size fits all for all of your issues, it's not you're, you're definitely not going to get the best in class product for every single use case. You might get it for one, maybe, but oftentimes what's going to happen is you're going to put it in. Okay. Well, they're decent at payment fraud. So that's going okay. But we actually implemented you most for your refund fraud product or for, you know, your account protection or your bot protection or whatever, you know, the, new use case was the problem that wasn't getting solved before. And they're not going to say, well, yeah, we just told you what we thought you wanted to hear. They also aren't going to say, well, yeah, we have six different products because we feel like we have to, but really only two of them are decent. <laughs> I don't know any vendor that's going to say that. Um, and honestly, there are some companies that just do one or two things really, really well, and they're going to be the best ones for you, depending on so many things, right? Um, well, I mean, even when I'm working as a consultant and helping companies, um, you know, select the right vendors for, you know, gaps or things like that. So I'll do a big assessment and a gap analysis and say, hey, this is the type of company that you need here, here, here. This is what I would suggest. Or, you know, here's a couple of different ways that, you know, combinations of things that will work. I am obviously taking into consideration so many things from their own engineering resources to their, you know, knowledge and experience level of fraud, all these things. So what I'm saying is I don't have just one or two companies that I recommend for every single merchant. It's gonna vary quite a bit on several different factors, your business model and all those things, as well as, you know, internal resources and knowledge and who's going to be able, who's going to be running it, right? Who's going to manage it? Some tools take more internal resources than others. Uh, some say that they don't, but they should. Others <laughs> say that they don't need resources and they end up needing a lot. Uh, so, you know, it just, it to handhold and babysit. So it just really depends, right? But my point with that being that there isn't just one solution for every problem, just like there isn't one vendor for every company or problem. And I'm sorry to, you know, the solution providers that want to sell to every single company. I know that that's, you know, everyone's goal. I mean, you have a business to run and have business decisions and all of that. But at the same time, I firmly believe, and I have seen this in action many times, that for the vendors that, you know, are honest and truthful and say, hey, we do this really, really well, for the most part, you will do well. I will say I say that for the most part, because unfortunately, there are some companies, whether it's because of a lack of sophistication or understanding of newer technology or a ignorance to new, you know, an unwillingness to understand new technology. Some people will never believe the truth. And instead, they want to hear what they want to hear, right? They want to hear that this company can solve all these problems. They want to hear, you know, exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear, yep, we can do that. Yep, we can do that. And here's the secret, right? Oh, not necessarily the, it's not really a secret, but it's just the truth, right? So the problem is that because resources are so tight, because fraud APIs are so difficult to implement, because in order to do a POC and especially a live POC, a proof of concept, so testing out the product to actually see how it works on your system, because you pretty much have to connect to them as if, well, you do connect to them as if you're using them full time. So the strong majority of online companies do not have the budget or resources or ability to 
run a proof of concept with their data after the fact or a live POC the standard way. Uh, now there definitely are solutions uh, and, and spec is one of them. So they're a sponsor. So I'll shout them out there that provide a you know no code platform where they connect to you and then through their connection to you, you can now uh, test out and POC multiple fraud products within a week or less uh, and all at the same time. Actually, the way I even learned about spec the first time was from a pretty large company that I think it was one of the first companies to use them, uh, but they, this was a year and a half ago, but they uh, had spec connect to them. And then spec was connected to three different solution providers that are core fraud solutions. Uh, they were able to run a POC against each other. Uh, so you know, all at the same time with three, uh, with routing three different buckets of traffic. And they made sure that the more or less the personas or the customer journeys, the people that were getting sent to vendor A were mirrored vendor B, mirrored vendor C, et cetera. And that was how that merchant was able to say, oh, well, this vendor is pretty, is the best at account protection, but this vendor over here is the best at payment fraud. But this vendor over here, because we're a marketplace of sorts, they're actually pretty good at vetting our sellers. They were able to know that because they did a live POC. So spec is not the only platform that does that. Um, you know, they do a lot of other really cool things uh, that I also believe in that I know that they do the best of. So that's why they're sponsoring the podcast and why I uh, work with them at times. But, you know, those are solutions. But back to kind of the standard and the norm, you know, most solution providers know you're not going to test this. You're not going to know how we actually perform on all of those different solutions that you're looking for or all those different problems or use cases until after you sign the contract until after we have your bank account and routing number and we can start billing you until after the fact that you're locked into a one or three year contract. Please, 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 if you're signing a contract, just make it one year, but especially if you haven't done any live POC, sorry vendors, but that's some free consulting advice to merchants and it's worth a lot more than you paid for it. Trust me, it would save you a lot of stress. I think it's also good to note that, you know, every vendor has a different approach to identifying suspicious behavior, um, but they also don't have same outcomes, right? So it's important to understand the how. Um, you know, do they even understand the actual issue? You know, like I said with refund fraud, there were a couple of vendors that were quick to say, oh, that's the new problem of the day. Okay, we're gonna say we can do that, but then it it really bit them and it's impacted, I think, I think all of them for the most part on that specific one because they attempted to approach it the wrong way and it didn't work, but they said it did, and that loses trust. So anyway, like, like I said, like when a merchant expects and demands, you know, one-stop shopping, often the vendor, you know, will say like, absolutely, we can do it all. Um, but you know, then if the merchant rewards them and believes them, they're often not going to know that that was a lie till like six to 12 months after implementation, sometimes sooner. And then they'll realize, right, that not only does that vendor's product not work for all the use cases that they said that would often there isn't even one that works that well for a single use case not always the case but sometimes and i think i kind of said this a little bit ago but you know in a lot of cases the sales reps or account managers are highly incentivized to sell multiple lines of revenue 
There is a specific example that I literally wrote down, don't get me started. Um, but there's, and that'll probably be a future episode, but there is one specific line of business that has been uh, adding many of the companies with that line of business have been adding a risk component of sorts. And they're usually not even close to anything that works, but because the sales reps and their account managers are highly incentivized to say almost anything to get them to sign up and transfer their fraud product to them uh, because they already work with them in other ways, it is becoming an absolute disaster. I mean, it's keeping me busy and I wouldn't say in business because I'd probably be in business others, but it's keeping me very busy with clients uh, right now, but it is costing companies so much money. I cannot even, I couldn't overstate that if I tried. So that's just an example of that. I'm not going off on that tangent today, but you can look forward to that one at some point. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So speaking of account reps and salespeople, I think it's good to note too that your expectations, the things that they, you know, say, absolutely, we can do that. Or they, you know, you have several conversations with them and you really convey like, this is most important or we're expecting this. Well, that may not always be conveyed to the people that are actually owning your account as relationship managers or you know, sales engineers or whoever's helping with implementation as well as, you know, working with you once you are a customer. So oftentimes it's kind of, you know, say whatever you can to get them through the door. And then, you know, you are talking to your relationship manager and you're like, hey, what about this? Like you guys said that you would, you know, you'd solve for that. Oh, we did? Oh, oh yeah, it was probably using this product and we're gonna, you know, toward it this way to have it do that or that. So it's just not always passed on. And, you know, so already the relationship's been, you know, set off on the wrong note, right? You're already disappointed because 
it's not doing what they say. And then on top of that, they didn't even think it was important to pass on to the person that was going to own your account. That is why some merchants have been finding rather creative and impressive, if I say so myself, ways to get out of some of these contracts early because the solution providers are not accurately representing their products in the right way. And solution providers, that really stinks because that's revenue that you're counting on. But if you can't hold up your end of the bargain, if they entered an agreement under false pretenses, well, you know, depending on state, federal law, wherever you are, they may be able to get out of that. There's also been some other creative ways, but I am not sharing those uh, for multiple reasons, mostly because I don't want to out anyone. Um, but um, because I think that some of the creative ways I know about were the only ones that were like that. So it would be very obvious, uh, at least to the companies that they ended business with. It wasn't. I just, nope, not going down that route. The last uh, main example I'm going to give as far as ways that I've noticed some buyers or merchants or banks, whatever we're calling you guys, um, can really set themselves up to fail or, or encourage their solution providers to behave badly either during the RFP or afterwards, etc. is when you pit vendors against each other, um, when you tell them who else you're talking to. So when they find out who else is in the RFI or RFP or who else is in your finals. And some of them will push really, really hard for that information. I was once working with a, a pretty uh, well-known brand and uh, one that hadn't ever really done this before and never been on the market before. So there were a lot of, you know, any vendor we talked to was very motivated to work with them. And there was one particular uh, vendor and, you know, obviously it was the sales reps that worked for them, but, you know, I, like most merchants or other buyers, assume that, okay, well, if these are the, you know, the ways that your sales reps behave, then it must be fine, right? It must be part of the playbook for that company. They're a representative of that company. Those, you know, we just got on a call to ask some, you know, questions to learn about their tool. And they spent the first 15 minutes pressuring me, trying to bully me, and more so bully the person who, you know, was the representative of the company to tell them who else we were talking to. They didn't want, and it was like, it doesn't matter, right? You need to focus on providing, you know, the best possible answers about your product. Focus on giving us the best, you know, having the best product. Um, but what they wanted to do and what was part of their playbook was they wanted to be able to disparage the other companies. They had a list and some companies have, you know, a competitive, like a competitor Intel, like intelligence person, or, you know, they have people uh, create, I can't remember what they call it, but something cards, like not flashcards, but something like that, where they are able to say, hey, if they're talking to this company or that company, tell them this or that. And finally, I think that the the person that um, I hadn't really prepped her and the person that was representing the company finally just gave in. I mean, it was, it may not have been 15 minutes, but it was at least 10. And I was like, you guys, let's move on. Okay, can we start the slide deck? It doesn't matter who else we're talking to. We're talking to you right now. Let us, you know, we want to learn about your tool. Or maybe we're learning right now that you are the tool, but <laughs> sorry, I've said that many times, not publicly, but <laughs> there we go. Um, I'm not saying who, who exactly it was, but in the moment, I was just so frustrated. And uh, finally, the you know representative for the merchant just said, oh, well, okay, you know, she 
didn't understand why it was important. Well, we're talking to these guys and those guys are, are they good? And I was like, don't ask that and don't tell them because the rest of the call became, oh, well, you don't want to work with them because of da, 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 and you don't want to work with them because da, 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 da. And half the time, or actually way more than half the time, they're completely wrong. They are making stuff up. They're hearing it third hand, right? A lot of times their competitors aren't going to tell them the selling points of, you know, their, the competitive product. So they're hearing it from customers or more so they're reading their website and trying to poke holes in it without even understanding really what is provided. And because I had worked with those other companies before, and I know a lot of customers of those companies, I knew that what they were saying was complete garbage. But that merchant wouldn't have. They didn't have a clue about the landscape. And that's what that vendor was hoping for. We're just going to tell you all the reasons why the other companies that you're talking to are bad. And then you're going to know that you have to come to us. And again, that works very well when there isn't a live POC. When they know you're not going to be able to compare our performance to their performance. You, a lot of times in these cases, those sales reps are fully aware that they have lost multiple of their customers that have used their product for a while to those other companies. So many cases where that's true, but it doesn't matter. They're still just going to, you know, throw up anything up against the wall. And if they can build even a little bit of a rapport or sound like they know what they're talking about, then that can happen. Just happened to me the other day with a client of mine that I've been working with where I had suggested that they look at other solutions for a specific issue because the company that they're working with now is less than capable of providing what they need and their metrics really show for it and they're losing millions of dollars a month because of it. So, you know, I've been, I provided a presentation saying, hey, here's the deal, blah, blah. Well, the next time, you know, I think that, well, I know that based on the questions I was asking their current provider, they picked up on the fact that I may be recommending that. So they started to, you know, tell the client, the representative for the company that was talking to them. It was just supposed to be, you know, about their account and current things, but they started to tell them all kinds of uh, inaccurate things about other solutions. Uh, you know, well, other solutions don't do this or that, or, oh, they're horrible because of blah, blah, blah. And I just started laughing when I heard it because I was like, that's not even close to true. And if anything, that is actually describing their own product. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's the same thing as like, you know, kids, right? Like if somebody doesn't want to be like, doesn't want their own flaws to be pointed out, they'll pick on someone else for their flaws. It's, you know, insecurity. From what I know of the companies that really do a great job and have good products and happy customers, they don't feel like they have to do that because they know that the companies who use them like them. They know that they keep them happy. They know that maybe sometimes they're going to lose a couple of, you know, good RFPs or good potential customers to other companies that are just going to lie or other things. But, you know, it usually ends up happening is usually after the year or even before that year is up. Oftentimes, well, a lot of times it's before that year is up because the merchant's like, okay, well, we need to lay the groundwork now for another option. They're contacted again and say, hey, so they didn't do what they said, or they <laughs> did a bait and switch. And yeah, their prices were super low at the time because, you know, when every vendor sounds the same, then you start looking at price or you start looking at, well, who's, you know, who's the sales rep? What sales rep do I like more? Or where did they take me out for dinner? How many Michelin stars did I have? What was the swag that they had sent to my office or my home office? When they all sound the same, when, I'm, when a buyer isn't able to 
differentiate either because they don't really understand but they don't want to admit that they do or they you know every company does really sound the same well then they start going off of those things because again no way to tell performance and for an industry that is so focused on data and we say we're data driven it's bananas to me that we just take people's word for it on how their product performs without you know doing a live poc when possible or and now it really is possible with technology that can connect to you know your content delivery network or other pieces of the network that your engineering team doesn't have to do a thing but you can test other solutions so really there isn't an excuse for it but i know it's not you know super common or known yet i think it's getting there these companies have been around for a couple of years uh sometimes it's just confusing because you can do that you can do so many different things uh with the same product rather than you know 17 different products within one company or whatever it is but you know those claims without proof or disparaging competitors, you know, without comparable data, all those things are because you don't get to see, you know, that saying the proof is in the pudding. Well, without a live POC or getting to, you know, see two or more competitors and how they perform, you know, in the field or, you know, live, well, then there's no pudding, right? So then they just tell you whatever they want to hear. Uh, here's a couple other things I'm just going to throw in here. Um, if you require an SLA or requirements, there are some people I know who've been like, oh yeah, I really stuck it to the, you know, the vendor, or I really, you know, protected our company. I made sure that they're not going to go over this number or under that number. You know, usually it's, I'm not, they won't let our chargebacks go over X and they won't let our approval rates go under Y or whatever that is. Make sure that there aren't any contract loopholes because there often are. Uh, that was something that Vineet, uh, brought up a little bit on her first episode. Um, I enjoyed both of those conversations so much that I can't totally remember. I think it was the first one where she was talking about vendor relationships a little bit more and how it's so important to read the contract. And yes, having legal read it is good, but you should be reading it with a fine tooth comb because you know what these words mean. And I'm not going to say any examples now. I'm just going to say that there are some landmines in some contracts, especially for some companies that are very eager to say, okay, well, if you don't trust us, we can you know, guarantee that we'll keep your approval rate over this. Well, oftentimes they feel comfortable doing that because if you ever do call them out and say, uh, yeah, it's been, you know, five percentage points over that or whatever it is for, you know, consistently for four months, you're in breach of contract. They'll come back and go, actually, no, because the contract says, you know, that that counts for everything except for this or whatever it may say. There are some people who like to brag that they're like beating up, you know, vendors on price, right? Like, oh, we got them for such a good deal or just caring about price. Um, and oftentimes they think that they got a better deal, you know, than the solution provider. And maybe they did, but you usually end up losing a lot more money in the end because oftentimes the companies that will come down on price to the point where they are losing money, they're the ones that just need to show their investors that they can still get companies to sign up with them. They're the ones that are hurting with their investors and they just need to do anything to get companies through the door. Nate with uh, said it when he said he put on his CEO hat on Tuesday's episode and how, you know, oftentimes board of directors uh, aren't always focused on revenue. They're focused on new customer acquisition. They're focused on, you know, how many new companies did you get through the door? They're not even as focused as how many companies did you lose to those competitors because you probably probably told those merchants at one point, hey, yeah, our solution can do that. Or, oh, yeah, we'll be great. We'll we'll perform this way or that way. And then you didn't. So you lost some of those competitors. But 
they're really focused on your new customer acquisition. So they'll do whatever they can to get you through the door. But then how much money are you losing in chargebacks? Or how much money are you losing in charge offs or in you know approvals, right? In false declines. If sure, okay, yeah, they kept your chargebacks under, you know, 50 basis points. All right, great. But you are declining over 20% of your transactions. So you know, there's false positives in there. How many of those customers are never coming back or going to your competitor or going to another company that sells your product at a much, much lower profit margin? Those are things you have to think about. You can't just look at the contract price. You have to think about, okay, well, if we pay this contract price, but they perform at the bare minimum of what they say they will, right? If they really just perform at that SLA of whatever you set the, well, whatever they agreed to have the approval rate be and, you know, the the chargeback rate, then you can do that with your average order value. Well, how much money are you actually losing, right? So compare it and then subtract it from that and say, oh, well, okay, we're, it's costing us X. So it's costing, it's cost us less to process them ahead or upfront. But if we just, if they perform at the bare minimum of what they're promising to do compared to another company that could do more than that, wow, it might be worth the extra few pennies per transaction or extra couple basis points. However, that fee structure is set up to go with the other guys because you'll make more money in the end. And that is what you get to brag to your you know CEOs. That's what your leadership cares about most. How much top line revenue are you bringing into the business? How many new customers are you bringing in? And then, you know, I'm probably going to say, well, I've probably said this a few times, but it's a little bit different spin. So, you know, here's a little more advice. If you don't have some way to verify that their product will actually solve the issues that you need it to and that they say they will, at the very least, please talk to some of their current or former customers. Just like I talked about on last week's episode, I did a whole, you know, if you are like, well, I don't know what customers they, you know, who uses them or how would I reach them or how would I know who to talk to? Go back and listen to last Thursday's episode. It was shorter and it was, you know, really talking about that uh, because I just know that companies would make better decisions if they at least talked to companies that use those products now. And make sure you talk to more than one. There are a couple of companies that, you know, may not have the same standards for a fraud product, uh, you know, or the same uh, level of expertise for a fraud product or understanding of it as others. So make sure you talk to a couple and you'll start seeing themes right away. You might see one or two outliers, but you'll go, okay, yeah, nope, all the rest are the same. And even the outliers were like, well, I mean, I think they're okay. (laughs) They just, they don't have anything overly positive or overly negative to say. Those are the ones where it's like, okay, well, if you didn't give any details, then I'm going to want to check with a couple other people. But when you talk to those people, don't just say like, what do you think of them? Ask about contract loopholes. Ask about, you know, how implementation was, how much they supported you. Ask about product performance and accuracy, pricing increases, customer support. When you have a problem, how quickly do they help you with it? All of those things. And like I said, there are several things that happen when uh, um, when a merchant takes a vendor's word for it, um, you know, or expects one solution to solve everything, um, or if they decide mostly on price or the salesperson or the swag or, you know, anything but the actual product performance because you may not have it or whatever else, they almost always regret it or at least they're disappointed and blame the vendor. So again, starts off on a bad note. Also, they'll often assume that all vendors are the same, right? So if they go through this process and this vendor, you know, didn't do what they said and the last vendor they selected didn't do what they said, well, now they just think all of them are the same and they get kind of, you know, negative, but also bitter and that's not productive for anyone. And that's also just not true. 
even if you unintentionally, you know, gave them incentive to tell you what they thought you wanted to hear, right? Like you're still going to blame them. Um, and in some cases, the outcomes are worse than they were than your, your previous provider. And then, you know, that relationship is broken, right? There's no trust. It's transactional or exploitive. Uh, often if a company or a vendor feels like they you know, need to lie or say whatever they need to to get the contract, then their product doesn't perform well, as I said. And usually they're the ones that are losing big customers out the back door. I see that quite often. Like, hmm, I know that, you know, several of their largest customers just left and now I'm hearing from others that, wow, we got a killer deal and they're going to be writing us a check at the end of the month if it's, you know, a chargeback guarantee model or something like that. Well, then what's in it for them, right? Like, why why are they willing to have you pay them so little money to, you know, basically they're paying you for a fraud solution? How much money are you actually losing? Like, how many orders are they canceling because of that? You just have to weigh out all the odds. And there's also, you know, there's also other things, right? I am very aware of companies that have agreed on very inexpensive pricing that just, you know, nobody else can understand well like how can they offer that well they do a one-year contract and then the next year after you know all their systems are within are looped into all of your systems and you know it's like an octopus or something is attached to your systems and so your engineers certainly don't want to take it out or replace it then they say well your pricing is now two or three times as much as it was before and yeah our performance isn't what we said it would be so this is the price or in some very very sneaky cases and i actually uh just talked about the behavior of this at a conference a few months ago and they were like i'd never mentioned the vendor and there were like three or four merchants that said oh i know who you're talking about and they named them um so maybe this happened more often than i realized but uh in the last year or two, I've heard of situations where a particular solution provider uh, that is in that camp of raising prices because they, you know, offered anything to get themselves in the door and knew that, you know, other companies just wouldn't suit that low or, you know, didn't want to start off on that, you know, wrong foot. They would make the contract renew at the busiest time of the merchant's year. So for instance, if they were a retailer, that was Q4, right? Uh, if they were a travel company, that was probably Q2 or Q1, depending on locations, etc. Um, and why do they do that? Well, A, they know that you're busy, right? So they want you to just sign it and not spend a lot of time going back and forth about it or, you know, whatever. They know that you're not going to be able to implement anyone else. Uh, not totally true now with no code platforms, but still, it, it's still, you know, a change, right? It's a change in your systems, it's a change in your SOPs and your processes and all that. So they just know that you're not going to try to do that. And also, in some cases, if you're like, nope, we don't want to sign this contract because either we don't sign contracts in our busiest quarter or we're talking to other companies, we don't want to sign an exclusivity with you, uh, which in 2023, there really shouldn't be any exclusivity because it should be very important to have redundancies. I think we learned that last year on Black Friday when some of the solution providers experienced DDoS attacks. But I know that in some cases those are still required and accepted. But what this particular vendor that I know of did was then say, okay, so it's your busiest quarter. You don't want to sign the contract. You're talk you want to consider other providers, but I know you're not going to switch now. Okay, well, if you don't sign by X date, we're just going to turn off your service. We're just going to turn off fraud review and then your chargebacks are going to go through the roof and you're going to be fined by the card brands 
I don't see how in the world that can be not like isn't considered extortion, but that uh, has happened and has happened enough times where in a room full of merchants, I didn't say the vendor's name at all and they knew it. So whether it happened to all them or their peers told them, that stuff gets back and that impacts uh, vendor reputation as well. So I hope that some of this is helpful. I uh, tried to make it as, as comprehensive as possible and also explain some examples because I know that, you know, like I said, I don't think that the RFI or RFP process is intuitive for buyers to send out. And, you know, just because you download one or there's a you know, a template for your company, fraud, the fraud space is so much more competitive in the last, you know, 10 years than it ever was before. And a lot of them are dealing with very angry investors, especially right now, especially as the economy isn't doing well, especially as a couple of them are losing their biggest clients because they are no longer performing as well as they used to, or they're no longer supporting their customers as well as they used to. That creates desperation, which often means that if you give some of these prospective partners easy way outs, if you you know, tell them what you're incentivizing and you're incentivizing the wrong things, you're asking the wrong questions, you're giving them information about you know, who else you're talking to so they can disparage them. Well, then oftentimes you're going to end up with a solution provider that is not going to be able to do what they say. And that is a very painful and expensive lesson. And for those of you on the solution provider side that I know are listening, and I hope that you are, I hope that this helps you too. I think it is so important to be true to your word. And if you feel like you have to lie about the product capabilities for your company, you may not be working for the right company. I, just That's just it, right? Like, I don't, I wish I could say, and there was a time in my career where I said, you know, not every solution is good for every company, but they all mean well and do their best and are trying and, you know, they do okay. That's just not the world we live in because I'm talking to your customers and I know it's not. But thankfully, there are still a few good ones out there. And I'm grateful for that, for everyone's sake. And honestly, you and mine, right? Because those are the companies who I want to partner with for sponsorships or, you know, working together in other ways. I really only want to help the ones that are doing right by their customers. It's not like I'm going to tilt the scales one way or another, but that's you know, one way that I can help reward good behavior rather than encouraging bad behavior like this whole episode was about. Well, it's a little longer than I usually do for solo episodes, but I hope that you appreciated how jam-packed it was with information. I know some of you have uh, notebooks that are filled with notes from Fraudology episodes. I really hope to get to see those one day and see what takeaways you had. But I would love some feedback on this episode. Uh, what did you think? Have you you know, done some of these the hard way or has this changed your mind and are you changing things? Just curious. It helped me a lot to have feedback. Sometimes it's a little weird to just have a one-way conversation. But with that, I'm going to wrap up this conversation for today and have a pretty awesome guest next week. Uh, I've been having great guests lately, so definitely subscribe so you can know when that episode is out next Tuesday. And I will look forward to speaking with you more then. Thank you.
you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.